0: You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 1st of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today.
1: Can you make a promise today to the British public that You will not go back to Brussels and ask for another delay to Brexit? Yes. And. Sorry. I, uh, and
0: would you I'd rather. rather be, I'd rather be dead in a ditch. As of today, the UK remains obdurately in the EU. Might that be Boris Johnson's epitaph? Also, ahead, a recap of a notably bad week, even amid a shocking year for Boeing. A reflection on what the last seven days have taught us. He died like a dog, he died like a coward. The world is now a much safer place. And as England and South Africa prepare to contest the Rugby World Cup final, is the real winner Japan? I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to today's edition of Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. It is November 1st today, and as attentive listeners will be aware, this was supposed to be the United Kingdom's first day of gambling freely on the sunlit uplands of Brexit following the departure we had been promised last night by Prime Minister Boris Johnson on pain of his own death in a ditch. However, the UK remains a member of the European Union for at least another three months, and the Prime Minister appears to be tarrying. vis-a-vis his choice of final resting place. Instead, we are having an, which is to say, an other election. Well, joining me, first of all, on today's show to struggle to contain their excitement at this development are Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey, and Monocle 24's executive producer, Tom Edwards. Um, Venetia, first of all, how? I, I, it's, it's hard to know what to be more excited about, the fact that Brexit has been delayed again, or the fact that we're having another election. This is hell, isn't it? That's, that's what's actually happening here. That is where we are stuck.
1: That thought has
0: just now occurred to me.
1: (laughs) It's not quite the Christmas present I was hoping for. I think that's definitely true. Um, But look, we've got a delay. That's a bit more time to figure things out. We've got an election which was coming at some point, um, so we might as well rip the bandaid off and get it over with and see 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 where things are. Get Brexit done. That's what you're saying. No, get get the election (laughs) done.
0: (laughs) Um, Tom, I, I want to cast your mind back to June 2016, which I know is difficult because such has been the last few years that honestly now feels to me like something that happened around the time the first Beatles album came out. But if you had been told circa June 2016 that circa November 2019, this still would not have been figured out, would you have been surprised? Uh, Not at all, actually. Well, you should have said something at the time. I you'd, did, look, you'd,
2: you'd have looked really clever now. I did mention to a couple of people that it was probably going to be rather more complicated than a clean <laughs> break. Um, and indeed, what, what's interesting, of course, is even those get Brexit done uh, advocates now. Um, you know, Donald Trump, who said, oh, it will take nothing more than for Boris Johnson to uh, get together with Nigel Farage. They can be an unstoppable farce. Sorry, force, oh, if they work see, together. See what you've done um, there. Yeah, you can't uh, extricate yourself from these layers of complexity. Frankly, even if a deal is done now and we leave, that's only another stage that could be even longer as we uh, try to settle the future uh, trading relationship with the bloc. That could take even longer. um, And again, the threat of of no deal will will remain. So sadly, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised it's taken three years. And we're sat here now. We could be sat here in 2022, Andrew. Well, that's that's a a prospect well worth staying alive for. Um, (laughs)
0: Venetia, what is different about this election is that there are a few parties running on an absolutely unambiguous, let's call the whole thing off ticket. The Liberal Democrats, uh, Plaid Cymru in Wales, the Greens. Uh, Labour are tending more in that direction than they were at the previous election, which is something that feels like it happened both just last week and again 200 years ago. Is that going to make a difference to the way people think about this election? Do you think a lot of British voters are thinking of this as sort of another vote on Brexit? Because at the previous election in 2017 or whenever that was, the whole thing was, yes, everybody was saying we will get it done. We may differ about how, but we have received our instructions and we will behave accordingly.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that's what makes this election so interesting and and quite difficult to call and also quite difficult for voters, because there is Brexit. That's obviously a huge issue that people will feel very divided about, as we saw in the referendum. Um, But there's also loads of other issues that need addressing in this country, from policing to the NHS, to um, schools, uh, loads of things that people also care passionately about. And so they feel very divided amongst these parties as to who will properly represent their interests and what they're going to prioritise when it comes to the poll booth.
2: And interestingly, Andrew, let's remind our listeners, particularly if they're around the world, may not get the delicate balance of the House of Commons as is. The Liberal Democrats, even with defections and the rest of it, fewer than 20 MPs still at the moment. uh, You mentioned a couple of others, Plaid Cymru, four, the Greens, just the one. Brexit, of course, they've got nobody. So the idea, there could be a sea change in uh, the actual uh, House of Commons, but that won't really play into what still is largely a a two-horse race. That being said, there are some interesting shifts. There are some interesting uh, dynamics. Um, Polling data is super bad for uh, Jeremy Corbyn. You know, Labour's trailing. There's a big Gallup poll this week here in the UK, and he's trailing by 20 points uh, on on Johnson, whose personal approval ratings have also gone up inexplicably um, of late. Um, But, yeah, I wouldn't hold your breath that this election will offer anything other than a short-term fix.
0: Uh, You make mention there, Tom, of the Brexit party who are the other new exciting factor here in that they did not stand in the previous election. In this election, as of today, they are threatening to stand in upwards of 500 constituencies if the Conservative Party will not reach an accommodation with them. Now, I'm I'm going to... I'm going, I'm, I'm leading the witness here. I, I am absolutely admitting that. Le- leading what, where I want to go, Andrew. What do you think the chances are that the Brexit Party of all organisations is going to be able to find 500 candidates none of whom will be swiftly revealed as frankly certifiable.
2: Um, I really, really want this to happen for a whole raft of reasons. I want all 500 to be there and go through the scrutiny of a general election. I want to drink in the delicious irony of the Brexit party sowing the seeds of its own defeat, because if they do try and take on, particularly the Tories in essence, in all of these constituencies, they'll be dealing potential hammer blow to their own cause, not unlike that which the... Conservative Party, erstwhile Conservative and Unionist Party uh, did to themselves in the previous election and with this Brexit vote in the, in the first place. The only thing I feel really bad about is for observers, listeners around the world who looked to Britain, to our parliament as, you know, one of the great exemplars of democratic process. I've brought a prop, Andrew, just oh, to demonstrate you. the point. It's from Fuller de São Paulo, the the paper of record or a paper of record in Brazil. They've run a blank article today, and the headline <laughs> the headline reads: "This space was for Brexit, but it didn't happen. They just let it. They're making jokes. I, I, I'm I'm ashamed uh, that I still kind of have to defend the processes that we're your, your, all your, somehow involved. Your,
0: your in. country's democracy." your country's democracy that is has become a laughing stock in South America that's what that's what you're saying of all places mm.
1: we are a laughing stock but the fact that it hasn't happened yet is emblematic of how divided the country is and parliament is so the fact that it hasn't happened yet means neither side has been able to push through their opinion I think that's fair. I mean, we don't like it. We're bored. Yes, we have become a laughing stock, but that is a reflection of how divided everyone is on this issue.
0: Venetia Rainey and Tom Edwards, thank you both for joining us. We're listening to the House View on Monocle 24 and let's look now at Boeing for whom the last week has seen a terrible year somehow getting even worse. Earlier this week CEO Dennis Muhlenberg was given a going over by US senators over the travails of Boeing 737 Max two of which have crashed in the last year with the combined loss of 346 people and seen the worldwide fleet of 737 Max is grounded. Then Qantas noticed a crack in one wing of its 737 N Gs, and then another, and then another. Well, still with me is Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey. Um, Venetia, as we go to air, Qantas has now grounded three of its aircraft. It says it won't ground all 737s, but does there come a point at which public opinion makes that impossible? I'm sure what Qantas is saying is absolutely correct. They are proverbial as an airline, which takes safety extremely seriously, but If passengers start saying we're not going to fly on them, they're going to have to make some sort of gesture, aren't they?
1: Yes. And I I was reading that 50 planes globally have now been grounded of that particular model, the um 737NG. And I think there is a snowball effect. I think no one wants to be seen taking unnecessary risks. Um, And I think a lot of people, when they get on, are increasingly checking that little leaflet to say, oh, what kind of plane are we flying on again? Phew, Airbus, that's fine then. Um, So, yeah, but you also don't want to bend unnecessarily to pressure and ground planes without due reason. It's expensive. It's really expensive. And I'm sure Boeing will be putting pressure on them to keep flying any planes that are are good to fly. I mean... uh
0: this is a nightmare on top of a nightmare for Boeing, isn't it? It just it just does not end. Do does it strike you that they are an organization that has any idea of how they're going to get out from under this?
1: <laughs> um no, I think they're still grappling with just how big this is. And we saw that in um, Dennis Muhlenberg's testimony this week in front of um, the Senate. And he he, he you know, he apologised, he said mistakes have clearly been made, that Boeing is doing everything they can to fix them. But he also denied knowledge of some messages from Boeing's chief um, flight test pilot, where the pilot basically said that he'd discovered this problem and that he was going to engage in what he called Jedi mind tricks to try and convince the regulators to approve the plane. So they were aware of this problem. And the idea that the CEO didn't know is kind of beggar's belief.
0: And that's not really something you want to hear as a passenger, that this aircraft is kept aloft by Jedi mind tricks.
1: No, that's not a very convincing way to fly.
0: I mean, are are they stumbling towards the point at which a a grand gesture is going to have to be made, even if it is actually the sensible, logical thing to do or not, whether it is just to say, okay, look, the 737 MAX, we give up, uh, or high profile resignations or something. Because the, the testimony or the the footage of the testimony of Muhlenberg at the Senate was watching it you kind of flinched uh, to think of how this would feel for any airline being told that they were you know selling people what one senator described as flying coffins that that seems like the kind of epithet that sticks
1: <laughs> yes yes it does and i I think I think muhlenberg's resignation can't be far away now he was stripped of his chairmanship earlier this month um, and He's holding on a CEO, I presume, to give them a figurehead to figure all of this out, but I don't see that lasting long. They've already created a $100 billion fund for families, and they've said that families, that doesn't. if you take money out of that fund, you can still sue the company. But we've also seen that Boeing has been trying to move some of those lawsuits against it from Indonesian families out to Indonesia, so that the company will be under less scrutiny. They might have to pay out less. They're clearly engaged in an exercise of damage limitation, and I'm, I'm just not convinced that they've taken on the full responsibility of this yet. They can't really scrap the whole program, though. It's their most profitable plane, and they they need it. They need it to work. It's huge. They've already lost about $9 billion this year just by grounding it these, what, eight months, and they're hoping to get it in the air by the end of this year.
0: But if we just look at the 737 MAX thing, I suspect the cracks in the wings in the 737 NGs, that is a story which we may be returning to. But even with... The best will in the world and all the luck they're going to need. Does Boeing have any sense, do you think, of how close they are to the 737 MAX being a viable thing again? Just this week, uh, American Airlines has been in receipt of a letter signed by 28,000 of its staff saying that, as they put it, they want inclusion in any decision about whether to fly the 737 MAX again, which does not sound to me like an absolutely uh, unfaltering vote of confidence in Boeing's judgement.
1: No, it doesn't. And I think there are good reasons for that. They've shown to not have very good judgment, clearly. Um, but whether they can get it, I mean, they, like I said, they're hoping to get it in the air by the end of this year. I think that feels really unlikely. If that starts to tail into next year, that will have a pretty big effect on the company's financials, actually, and could even have a bit of a drag-down effect on the US economy.
0: Venetia Rainey, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Up next, a look at what we learned this week. <laughs> This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. In a moment, we will be learning more about a soft power triumph for Japan. First, though, it's time to look back and ask, what did we learn this week? We learned this week that the United Kingdom's efforts to leave the European Union will extend into a fifth year. If one pursues the analogy of a divorcing couple popular among commentators attempting to make sense of proceedings, the EU, having kept the family home and adjusted to the household's new dynamics, has grudgingly agreed to lengthen the UK's lease on the shed for another three months, with the suggestion that it is high time that the errant partner pulled itself together. This monologue will, at this point, rise heroically above suggesting that British Prime Minister Boris Johnson may be familiar with the feeling.
2: Sovereignty is people's
0: ability, the ability of the public, to control their lives and to make sure that the people they elect are able to pass the laws that matter to them. And the trouble is with Europe that that is being very greatly eroded and you're seeing it more and more over... Uh, employment, over border controls, over human rights, over all sorts uh, of stuff. We learned that, instead, the UK intends to spend much of the build-up to Christmas conducting a general election, which will at least have the advantage of getting two doses of insincere hawking and rancorous bickering out of the way at once. Monocle contributor Joy Ladico is among the many journalists looking forward to taking notes while wearing mittens.
2: People will say, uh, look, the re- referendum, 17.4 million votes for Brexit. That's why we are in the position we are at the moment. We've got a government key who keeps saying the will of the people. For Boris Johnson to win this election and get a majority, he needs about 10.4 million votes. So that's, in fact, far fewer votes. Because this is geographical rather than a sum total, he needs them in the right places.
0: We learned, or really had reiterated, that there is no triumph which US President Donald Trump cannot bespoil by tripping over his own shoelaces on the victory lap. At the weekend, Islamic State leader Abu Bakir al-Baghdadi was killed in a raid on a compound in Syria by US special forces. All that remained was for the President to read a solemn statement ask God to bless America, and await the extension of due credit from even his fiercest critics. Instead, Trump decided to say words. A reminder that this is the actual President of the United States, not a nine-year-old describing a Steven Seagal film. Last night was a great night for the United States and for the world. A brutal killer, one who has caused so much hardship and death has violently been eliminated. He will never again harm another innocent man, woman, or child. He died like a dog. He died like a coward. The world is now a much safer place. God bless America. We learned that the adage about the definition of insanity being doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting different results appears not to have caught on in Argentina. In a presidential election, voters unloaded incumbent Maurizio Macri, on whose watch the economy had tanked, and installed Alberto Fernandez and his well-known running mate Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, on whose watch as president the economy had tanked. This was Monocle's Declan McGarvey in Buenos Aires. Late on Sunday night in the wake of this election victory, the central bank tightened currency controls, um, limiting the amount of foreign currency that Argentinians are able to buy on foreign exchange markets ahead of uh, the markets opening this morning. The peso currency has already lost almost 50% of its value against the US dollar this year alone as a result of those fears of a return to power of Christina Kirchner. We learned, or at least very much got the idea, that President-elect Fernandez will not be receiving a Christmas card from his Brazilian Counterpart, Jair Bolsonaro did not offer so much as a pro-forma congratulation. President Bolsonaro did, however, find the time amid a visit to Saudi Arabia to yell into his laptop at his bemused people back home. Agradeço a Deus pela minha vida, grande par a população por ter acreditado em mim, e eu tenho um compromisso: tirar o Brasil do buraco, apesar da imprensa porca, nojenta, canalha e imoral we searched Monocle's editorial floor for a Portuguese speaker capable of properly relaying Bolsonaro's seething rage here's Fernando Augusto
2: Pacheco I thank God for my life and Brazilians for believing in me I have the compromise to take Brazil out of the hole, in spite of the putrid, scoundrel, disgusting and immoral press like Globo TV. Good night, and sorry, I confess. I am a bit exasperated.
0: We learned that Russia has learned an arguably limited amount about the wisdom of allowing its allies to have a go on its surface-to-air missiles, deploying its S-400 system in Serbia during a joint exercise between the two countries. The exercise is known as Slavic Shield, which sounds like one of those pop acts with a faintly unsavoury nationalist undertow which occasionally gets smuggled into Eurovision. And perhaps next May might well be It won't be worse than what Serbia submitted last year. This was Monocle24's Balkans correspondent Guy De Russia and Serbia have done numerous military exercises together over the years, sometimes uh, in Serbia, sometimes in Russia, somewhere, sometimes in, in other places too, um, and they do tend to come up, come up with these snappy names which, which do tap in uh, to the mythology of, uh, of this Slavic Orthodox Brotherhood. I think, you know, you could probably get a random name generator for these sort of events. We learnt that tracking eagles in the name of scientific research Research can get surprisingly expensive if you haven't bought the proper data package. A Russian program tracking the migrations of the steppe eagle ran out of money when the birds, fitted with transmitters which relayed their location via text message, ran up roaming charges over flying Pakistan and Iran. And sticking with wildlife news, we learned that goats are surprisingly effective firefighters. One of the wildfires presently incinerating swaths of California appeared poised to threaten the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, repository of treasures including the Boeing 707, which flew as Reagan's Air Force One. The library may, it turns out, have been spared by the decision of its custodians earlier this year to hire a phalanx of bearded ruminants to eat the flammable scrub around the building. We also learned that this is a thing you can do in California at a cost of around $1,000 an acre. That was what we learned this week, or some of what I learned at least. I I genuinely did not know the things about the eagles and the goats. Uh, This is Monocle's House View. Don't go away. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. The 2019 Rugby World Cup concludes tomorrow in Tokyo with a final pitting England against South Africa, which poses quite the challenge for the neutral observer. The prospect of Japan hosting the event initially attracted an amount of bafflement and or mockery, Japan's own rugby having been traditionally longer on enthusiasm than expertise. However, not only did Japan stage the event with the cheerful efficiency that might have been expected off the park, the Brave Blossoms gave a decent account of themselves on it, reaching the quarter-finals after topping their qualifying group. And joining me now with more on this, still caked with the ashes of the Wales jumper he burned earlier, is Monocle 24's Rhys James. Um, Rhys, first of all, on that point, uh, commiserations. You you. Thank had, you w- you and, and your people
3: thought you had one hand uh, on the cup about this time last week, didn't you? Not quite, but... It's a pretty depressing situation to be in this studio talking about it. I'm still hurt anyway. <laughs> four, four points, four points. That's all we needed and we would have been in the World Cup final playing England tomorrow. Yeah, you'd
0: have over- and, and you'd have overcome the All Blacks to get there, which would have been quite the story.
3: Yeah, well, we wouldn't have had to play the All Blacks. The All Blacks had already been knocked out by England. So we would have, you know, it would have been us versus England in the final. And then, you know, who knows? But it wasn't to be this time around. Um, before
0: we look at the World Cup, which is actually happening, and, and, and at the risk of, of pressing on that bruise, I, I, I do want to ask you, uh, especially for the benefit of our international listeners who may not fully appreciate what a big deal it would have been had Wales gone all the way, or even all the way to a final against England, what that would have been like for Wales. I, 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 what I guess I'm basically asking, if if it had been Wales versus England tomorrow, uh, and Wales had won the thing, how much of Cardiff would still have been stuck? standing up roughly time Saturday.
3: It probably would have been Richard Burton, Dylan Thomas, have <laughs> drunk in, in the streets of <laughs> Cardiff. That's how bad we're talking. And in, in, on a serious point, I think for people who are not aware, rugby is probably as big in Wales as football is in Brazil. It, it infects everything. Everybody is obsessed with it. You can't avoid it. You walk through the streets of Cardiff at 9 o'clock in the morning when a game is kicking off at 5 o'clock in the evening. You know, and people are already kind of going into the bars, getting a drink, picking up hot dogs, putting their scarves on. It's It really infects the entire country.
0: Well, looking then back to the World Cup as it actually is, which I realise, as you were suggesting, is a somewhat depressing prospect, <laughs> but... You know, From the point of view of the proper rugby fan, as you clearly are, ha- has it been a good Rugby World Cup? Has it justified the decision to hold it in Japan, not a traditional rugby heartland? Yeah, it's
3: been fantastic. I think there was a lot of scepticism skepticism about holding it in Japan, um, but it was the first time not only it was held in Japan, but in an Asian nation, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, Japan form- performed brilliantly. Uh, they beat Scotland and Ireland on the way, uh, faced uh, South Africa, who we now know are in the final. Uh, so they've done really well and they've put on an incredible show and they've also had to contend with uh, Typhoon Hagibis as well, mm. which, you, which you probably know about and kind of swept over kind of a large part of the country, which... Uh, forced the kind of abandonment of a few games along the way. And a lot of people were saying, oh, I can't believe that, you know, they're calling off some games because of this. And they were like, this is pretty serious. Dozens of people uh, dozens of people died. And they handled it really well. They, they abandoned the games, moved people out of the way, and everything's been handled brilliantly. And, of course, Japan's got the um, got the Olympics next year as well. So this has very much been seen as a kind of dry run ahead of the Olympics and a chance really to get everything in order ahead of the, those games.
0: I mean, it, it'll obviously take a while to tell but you correctly point out that Japan's team uh, were far from there just making up the numbers. They played very, very well. Uh, they beat uh, at least two traditional rugby powers. Yeah. What does what has to happen to get from that to Japan becoming a serious rugby power? I
3: think they're already there. I think that if, if they'd come third in their... In their pool game, if they'd lost to Scotland and Ireland, everyone had said, you know, they put on a good show, they played some nice rugby. But I think actually getting through to the quarterfinals of the World Cup, not having lost a game in the pool stages. I think Japan are there. I think now people will take them seriously. I think that young kids in Japan who would have perhaps kind of experienced rugby for the first time. Cause Japan is not a kind of traditional rugby mm. nation. This is still very much, you know, as our Tokyo Bureau Chief Fiona's told us many times, it's still quite a niche sport in Japan. But I think that's changed now. I think that kids will be looking at uh, the performance of the cherry blossoms and saying, you know, the... Th- you know, I can I can be the I can be the next big Japanese rugby player, not the next big Japanese baseball player or football player.
0: Well, just finally then, um, for the benefit of a lot of our international listenership, will, who will be listening to us from non-rugby territories or other territories where it is seen as something of a niche sport, if they do want to sit down uh, and test their curiosity on the World Cup final tomorrow between England versus South Africa, what should they be looking to? If if that's one of the first examples of rugby you've ever watched, what's something to look out for?
3: I think the thing that, uh, a person watching rugby for the first time might be surprised about it. just how physical it is. It's incredible. I mean, even when you watch it on television, you can hear the collisions. You can hear, you can hear the bones crunching as the players are running into each other. I mean, these are big guys. Some of them are 19 or 20 stone. Uh, they're enormous guys so that's something to watch out for and two of the biggest teams playing tomorrow England and South Africa Um, and the other thing is I think as well and this is perhaps kind of changed from how rugby used to be is that there's a place now in rugby for for smaller players the guys with kind of guile and speed so you can expect a really kind of high tempo game and two teams 30 players really kind of giving it their all um, to try and kind of uh, win the Web Ellis Trophy tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning our time and
0: just as a final final thought where does a welsh fan pitch their loyalties if it's england versus south africa do you regard That's a it tough one is it is it sort of britain versus the world
3: or anybody but england well as a welshman England are our, you know kind of traditional kind of enemies on the rugby pitch um and south africa you know as you alluded to earlier they're not the most lovable team and <laughs> um, but what i will say and i think that it's a great moment for south africa tomorrow their captain sia is he's the first black captain of uh, the South African rugby team is a—it's a, it's a game that's been traditionally traditionally dominated by the the white Afrikaner community. So, um, on that basis alone, I'm going to say that I'm back in South Africa and I wish Khaleesi and his team all the best. Rhys James thank you
0: for joining us. That is all for today's edition of Monocle's House View it was produced by Augustin Machilari, Our studio manager it was David Stevens. Coming up at twenty hundred, a brand new edition of The Menu. The House View returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller thanks very much for listening. Have a great weekend.